Welcome to this special episode. 2024 is going to be a massive year in politics. One of the frustrations that I had with politics when I worked in Downing Street was that sometimes business didn't get the coverage or the awareness that it deserved in the political media. And that's why I wanted to bring this new series with my great friend Christian May, the former editor of City AM, to talk a bit more about where business and politics overlap because it's two of my favourite subjects. And this is the type of conversation that we have down the pub. Um, and I, I thought it needed a wider audience. Um, We've always felt that. Every felt time that. we go for a drink, we think, why aren't people here listening to us? Exactly. Just talk a bit louder. Just talk a bit louder. I'm sure people will go They'll and come. listen. They'll gather. Um, so, and, and particularly this week, I just thought it was such a kind of good week. We've been talking about it for ages, but it, there was Labour's Big Business Day. Prime Minister announced a new business council. He also did some help to growth, uh, reboost stuff as well. And I just think this stuff is fascinating getting behind that because there's a there's a whole industry, believe it or not, around um, helping people to kind of navigate government and politics and, and what goes into that, I find uh, endlessly fascinating. And so that's why we thought we'd sort of start talking a little bit about it and you and i have worked at business and politics for 10 years you know we were at the institute of directors way back when did you join the iod i started at the institute of directors in 2012 maybe yeah. 13 um yeah possibly end of 2012 so. yeah and i joined in 2014 just ahead of the 2015 election in fact my first day was when boris johnson decided he was going to become member of parliament for uxbridge and put his hat in the ring for it again um, which I suppose ended up shaping British politics for another 10 years in one way or another. Um, and what what were your kind of reflections on working at the IOD? Because it's worth kind of explaining a bit about what the Institute of Directors, already falling into that, but what these sort of different lobby groups do, because you've got the Institute of Directors, British Chambers of Commerce, Confederation yeah. of British Industry, CBI, um, and what these groups do. Well, there are, there are a number of them, as you say, and... A lot of them have, you know, different different reasons, different appeals, different um, reasons why a business would, would sign up and join up. I think in the Institute of Directors, one of the reasons why people would join um, was because of the level of support the IOD would give you um, as a company director. But one thing that all these groups have in common is that at least a part of their operation is dedicated to representing the interests of their members to government, mm. whoever's in government. Um, and that was particularly our focus at the IOD. We were running their policy team, the policy unit, um, and so that really included all the sort of policy research and advocacy, almost like a think tank, a kind of business and economics think tank within the IOD, and representing those positions in public and in the media, but also through regular meetings with the Treasury, with Number 10, with the Business Department um, and all the other different parts of Whitehall um, to you know, help not just politicians and government but also officials, the sort of permanent political class, yeah. understand what are the concerns or priorities or issues that, that businesses have. And that's something that all the business groups will do. And sometimes we all came together, um, sometimes we'd all sign a letter together and sometimes we'd have particular issues of focus and, and and of course we were also there as a resource for government when they needed to call on the business community for input or in response and you'll remember there were some occasions I think do you remember when there was really terrible floods flooding uh, across the country and always feel really bad for a government 
when there's floods happening because there's nothing you can do apart from put on your waders and go and be filmed standing in a wet field looking sympathetic. But one of the things I government still get criticism. Still get <laughs> one of the things government can do is sort of summon the business groups. So we were summoned to Downing Street at the height of one of the floods with about 40 minutes notice. I went for the IOD and the British Chambers of Commerce were there, Association of British Insurers were there, CBI was there, a couple of others. And we were met by one of the PMs, one of David Cameron's advisors, and the meeting was so hastily arranged, they didn't even have a meeting room. So we were sort of scrambling around looking for a room. Um, and as we were looking for a room, I'll never forget the sight of Oliver Letwin, who was like a sort of Cameron's big brains at the time, came shuffling down one of the corridors. I don't think he had any shoes on. That's how I remember it in my mind. But what I also remember was that he was clutching an enormous amount of rolled up ordnance survey maps. And he was looking for a room with a table big enough that he could unfurl all of these maps and sort of study terrain and topography. And I thought, this this is it. This, this, is, this, is, this is how it works. <laughs> this, is, this is the situation room. Oliver Letwin's got his maps out, but he hasn't got a table big enough to roll them out on. We then went and had our meeting with the PM's business advisors and everyone took their turns to talk about how it's a very serious matter for business and all that kind of stuff. So that's the other function of the business groups <laughs> is to allow government to announce something. You know, they've had urgent talks with the business communities. You remember that sort of stuff as well. Of course, because it was I posted some thoughts on LinkedIn about um, Labour's uh, business day and the PM's council, etc. A couple of comments were, where do the FSB and IOD kind of fit into all of this kind of stuff? Because... One of my reflections now running a business is that, you know, even having been in politics, like I'm still not aware of all the schemes and how to navigate government is really hard. But also what I think they're particularly useful for was the thing we used to do at the IOD was policy voice, where we used to survey a thousand members. And that used to be, you know, by when I was in number 10, but also colleagues, like really valuable information of actually getting, you know, what does the business community think of, you know, whatever it might be rising corporation tax that's probably not a very good example but sometimes there'd be some interesting stuff around you know national minimum wage and that being increased you know businesses would actually be more in favor of that than you might might think so that was one of the sort of very important things as well can you remember some of the stuff that we used to yeah and it was interesting for us because at the time of course it was coalition government so we were dealing with tories in number 11 number 10 but vids cable principally in the business department where we would go and talk to him quite regularly and um I found Vince Cable perfectly sensible when it came mm. to understanding the business community, even if his instincts were occasionally at odds with kind of more free market um, Tory thinking. Um, but we did used to have those meetings and, and you know, periodically you'd be invited in to, to sit around a huge table with the prime minister or something. And, you know, and there was value in that, but it was almost more ceremonial. Yeah. Because actually the real value was when you're in the basement of you know a sub-office of the business department talking to a member of the regulatory policy committee about a technical detail around you know, imports. Because actually so much of, of, of the sort of work that business groups and lobbyists in the private sector do is on the technical and the unglamorous and the boring and the really, really important. Yeah. Um, and so... Yes, it's nice to sort of stride up the Downing Street and go in and sit down with the Chancellor and say, this is what our members want. Um, and, you know, you might feed in and you might be able to give a sense of, of, of where your members are or what the business thinks about X, Y or Z. But I would say the, the greater value comes from being able to stop something happening that was ill thought through mm-hmm. that would have a really serious 
uh, impact on businesses or, or being able to take an idea and say, listen, this is really worth looking at and getting into the nuts and bolts of it. There's a very relevant example of this to bring it up at the moment is the investing in startups, something I'm passionate about and is a great thing for people to do. What they have changed now is the limit that people can invest at. So you need to be sort of self-certified as kind of high net worth individual, etc. And you have to kind of pass these sort of tests if you want to invest on these CrowdCube sites, Cedars, etc. And they've shifted the amount from 100,000 to 170,000. Um, now, the 100,000 hasn't been updated in years and years. So a boffin in the Treasury has sort of thought, well, it's about time that we did this, etc., Increased it to 170,000. Um, but the sort of the female angel investor community has said, well, actually, this sort of that is going to really impact quite a lot of female investors, and we're already struggling with that, et cetera, anyway. But the problem is, no one's actually really sort of noticed this until the very last minute. Mm -hmm. um, and so now there's all this sort of back channeling, and it's kind of yeah. it's a great example of where like minor legislation can actually sort of have an impact because whilst it's not going to change any female angel investor at the moment, it might stop the next sort of, you know, Debbie Bosco or Emma Sinclair or any of these people from thinking they could do that. Yeah. And actually that is, it's it's a great example of where it's such a minor piece of government legislation in some ways. Um, and actually what it doesn't recognise is the whole landscape of investing has changed in the last 10, 15 years. There are far more ways of doing it now, etc. But it is an example of where actually sort of, you know, lobby groups should try and pick that up and just point yeah. it out to treasury and so on um, yeah i think that's i think that's absolutely right and you know, when i left the iod to go to be the editor of city am i i started to see the relationship between business and government in, in a different way um and started to, to to speak to you know businesses i started to speak to businesses in a different way obviously it was more journalistic and mm. um, it, was no, it was no longer so obviously my job to try and help them uh, talk to government. Um, but precisely the sorts of things that you were just talking about, you'd have all these off-the-record conversations with businesses and, and what they might be saying publicly about the government's budget or direction of travel, they would say to you off the record, but they just don't understand this or they've really dropped the ball here or, you know, whatever it was. So um, that, you know, we're talking about the relationship between business and politics and, and, and from both of our perspectives, the sort of third wheel in that, uh, is is the media, yes. uh, business, politics, and the media, and the relationship between them, and uh, you know where they overlap and where there are points of tension is is really interesting. And by the time I was embarking on my editorial career, um, I think you'd gone off to to work for incoming Prime Minister, yes, Theresa May. But um, we'll, we we should talk about your time because that was your job in Number Ten mm. for Theresa May as Prime Minister was to liaise with the business community, but. You mentioned at the beginning... I've not talked to the media. And certainly not talked to the media, no, I know. It's very difficult. When, you're, when you're one of your best friends gets jobs like that and you call them up, you, you have to get used to saying, is this on the record? Is this off the record? And you say, I'm, just call, I'm just calling for a chat, Nate. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But you mentioned at the beginning of this about Labour having their big business day, their big business festival this week. And we should spend a bit of time talking about that because it's really very, very interesting and... and, and Probably the most interesting thing about it is 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 how it represents almost just visually the journey that the Labour Party have been mm. on uh, under Keir Starmer. I think you and I have discussed before how um, much quicker um, Keir Starmer and his team have achieved this transformation um, compared to how long I thought it would take them to be so obviously not Corbyn. Yes. Um, the fact that they have now earned the right to be heard, they've got this huge level of interest um, from the business community, 
I think is worth exploring because if you look at some of the coverage of yesterday's business extravaganza, you could be forgiven for thinking that it was like a rally and that everyone in the audience was cheering for a Labour government. Um, whereas, you know, in fact, it's probably worth stepping back and saying, actually, you know, the vast majority of people in that audience are professional um, public affairs professionals. Um, they're very good at their job and it is their job to understand and interact with and um, hear about government and incoming government and perfectly pragmatic perspective is that Labour Party's been 20 points ahead in the polls for six months and probably might tighten a bit but the smart money is that Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves will lead the next government and so of course there's now this interest mm. um, and it makes perfect sense in fact it's essential for the businesses to, to hear about what Labour's going to be like for the economy and for businesses um, but I'm not sure I'd confuse that at this stage with an overwhelming um, enthusiasm or you know anticipation of a Labour government yeah. because there's still a lot of questions to be answered so yeah, I think it's absolutely the case that business is taking Labour very very seriously and it's definitely the case that Labour is taking the business community very very seriously and that's that's political that's a political positioning exercise the extent to which even Angela Rayner was yeah. out you know uh, on the stage at the business conference yesterday saying, I love CEOs, I love businesses, they're grafters, I get them, I love them. You know, it is a very, very long way from the Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell uh, era. And that's a very deliberate strategy. Of course it is. It, it's a ruthlessness as well that Labour is showing, right? And it's it's discipline and really wanting to be in power, which is something the Labour Party has had a bit more... Uh, traditionally is not perhaps, you know, the Conservative Party will be seen to do anything to get into government and stay there, etc. Um, whereas Labour Party is not quite sometimes as disciplined as that. And you're seeing it at the moment, right? They are all on message. They are all towing the line. And it's very impressive um, in that regard. Uh, whereas you've got sort of all kinds of factions happening in the Conservative Party, etc. Um, and... Angela Rayner as well has been doing this for quite a while. Like, you know, she was at the CBI conference a year ago on the future of work. And she gave that sort of, you know, I'm a graft speech, I'm like you. And and that's kind of what businesses sort of want to hear um, in terms of just a bit of empathy and a bit of understanding that, you know, that people... Well, it's reassurance, you know. I mean, it's really not that long ago that the, the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, um, and even before that under Ed Miliband, was of a very different colour and yes. perspective. And you know, their instincts were, um, let's say Ed Miliband's opposition was hostile to the business community. It wasn't, but it was much more kind of intellectualised, left-wing approach to it. Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party was, was actually just hostile to the idea of wealth and profit and all, all that comes from that. And of course, Keir Starmer's party, in terms of mood music and positioning, you know, they, as you, exactly as you put it, the ruthlessness with which they're trying to anticipate and shut down every Tory attack yeah. for, the, for the general election campaign. And some, sometimes that's really specific on, on matters of tax. And sometimes it's on mood music and that we are aligned with the business community. The business community is taking us seriously. There was a very good... Um, one of the things that we did at the ID was we would have sort of breakfast with the various party leaders, etc. I remember us doing one with Ed Miliband's office. It's just popped into my head. And he talked about his conference speech one year and he'd said, and we must recognise the good that business could do. And then he went on to his next point. And he actually said to his team, uh, which was likes of Stuart Wood, Lord Wood of Anfield now, etc. Like, 
just give an example. Give a couple of examples there yeah. of where business does do good. Like, just go that little bit further. And that, that's what we're seeing, I think, to be honest, with Starmstein at the moment. I have to confess, I think I probably set the IOD's relationship with Ed Miliband back quite a few paces. I'd only been in the job there for at the IOD for a couple of months, I think, um, when Ed Miliband gave a speech as leader of the opposition, um, planning, I think he was announcing plans that the next Labour government under Ed Miliband would um, would seize undeveloped land held by property developers if they hadn't built homes on it within a few years. And our sort of free market instincts kind of bristled at this. And I was talking to a journalist, I think at the Mail, who asked what the IOD thought about it. Um, and I think I might have used the word Stalinist. In fact, I know I used the word <laughs> Stalinist. I said it's a bit Stalinist to talk about seizing land. Um, and the next day, the front page of the Daily Mail had the word Stalinist in quotes. as um, a huge splash headline. Miliband's Stalinist plans attacked. An opening paragraph, you know, last night, the Institute of Directors accused expert. So you can imagine, um, you know, after the slight sort of... Um, endorphin hiss of gosh look how important i am i've just created an enormous front page story after that wore off um i thought i think i might actually have also overstepped the mark a bit there. We, we definitely had some some building of bridges to do with with ed miliband's labor party after that yeah it's um it's funny because actually you know you think back to that time as well around sort of 2013 14 you know it was not clear that david cameron was going to win Labour majority and actually there was a similar sort of must understand a bit more about what Labour's doing, what their plans would be, etc. What would Balls and Miliband want to do for the economy? Um, obviously, it didn't come to transpire, and it's certainly not as overwhelming feeling as it is this time. But it is a it is a good example of you know these um, you know it, history history you know in a, in hindsight it was obvious. Yeah, well, and this is what business is doing now. So if you look at Labour's mm. business conference, look who was there. Yes, as I said, the audience was you know, full of public affairs professionals. It's their job to be there. But look who appeared on stage from big businesses. Um, look who was sponsoring the event. Um, yeah. And look who you know, was paying thousands of pounds to have a dinner with Labour the night before. And you look at these people and you think, of course, they're taking things very seriously. They know the way the wind is blowing, and I understand that. Um, but what Labour is going to be looking for uh, in the run-up to the election during the campaign is endorsements. Yes. It's, um, you know serious people, businesses, business groups, entrepreneurs, signing letters saying it's time for Labour, etc. So at the moment, they're, they're in the pre-endorsement phase, they're in the engagement phase, um, but they're going to be looking for business leaders to actually endorse uh, Labour policies and the idea of a Labour government. And I, I don't know if they will get those. Mm. And this is where I want to talk to you about how you do try and tease business leaders and businesses and brands to come on board and yes. to really associate themselves with the government. Because there is a difference between providing expert input to government thinking and being available and being on Prime Minister's business councils um, and participating in events. There is a difference between that and coming out and saying, this country needs a Labour government. And you, you, your job at Number 10 was probably trying to manage that balance. And yes. I just wondered how you went about that. Um, I mean, I, I spent a lot of my time trying to get sort of endorsements for various Brexit deals from business leaders. That was a big part of what I sort of was there to do. And this, would, is, this, this, this is this deal's the really good one. This, 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 this is the final one. This is the final one. Like, <laughs> if we don't get your help with this one, right, who knows what will come next. Um, and it's, 
I mean, I mean, it's very difficult for particularly for public companies. There's a, there's a bit of a yeah. distinction here in terms of public companies listed on the stock exchange will not like sort of getting involved in it because don't forget, even if Labour have an amazing result at the election, they're still not going to be getting over forty five percent in an absolute top top scenario. So that still means you've got half the country that didn't vote for them, um, and another mm. portion of people who don't vote at all. So you. There is always a nervousness from those, particularly big retailers and whatever that you know trying to big consumer-facing brands, exactly, in or particular, just yeah, sort of uh, really despise it. But then there are you know companies that um, private companies are much more kind of like flexible with this kind of stuff um, and are open to it. So that would often be where I would try and start to it. But I did understand businesses not wanting to put their names to it and they never want to be first and they want to know who else is there. Yeah. So there's always yeah. that kind of like challenge with it. What's the letter going to say, etc. So I slightly think the letter writing mould is broken a little bit for it. But where it's different, if I were thinking from the, from the Labour Party's point of view, I think the Labour Party has more to gain from getting business endorsements. I actually think the Conservative Party getting business endorsements doesn't particularly help is not particularly surprising so I don't think we'll see that in the run-up to the election this year but I think Labour will try and do it but I think it's it's hard and I think you can do it in the modern world you can be a bit sort of smarter about it I mean you he's not well I suppose he sort of is business leader now Mark Carney at Labour Party conference and sort of you know doing a video message for Reeves beforehand saying it's time to implement her ideas I mean that's about as close up to the line as you can get without sort of a yeah. endorsement. Well, you've um, been very diplomatic. I'm not sure I would call Mark Carney a business leader. Well... I think I'll call him more of a kind of professional member of the global elite, well, slight opportunist, full-blown uh, <laughs> climate change bandwagon financier. But if that's what passes for a business leader these days, then... Um, fair enough. But it's that type of thing that they'll get. I mean, they have had an endorsement this week from Richard Walker. Um, yeah, but he was I... endorsing the Tories the week before that. I mean, well, yeah. Week, I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's slightly embarrassing to, to one week been writing to the current Prime Minister saying, why won't you make me a Tory MP? <laughs> uh, and get no answer. And so the following week you, you announced that you're you're actually all, all guns blazing for Labour. But, yeah. um, but, you know, he's been on a journey. I mean, that's perfectly understandable. But, but he's a good example of your private business, yeah. particularly a private business or an entrepreneur, who has a public profile beyond just their business? Yes, um, which which Mr. Walker certainly does, and there, there are plenty of others. Yes, um, I mean it is one of my big sort of predictions for the next twenty, thirty years that you'll see more business leaders go into politics. And there's a number of reasons for this. Um, partly, it's become much easier to make money earlier in your career with the internet and so on. So actually, you're getting entrepreneurs that have made you know several million quid before the age of forty. Now, some of them will want to do it again, but some of them will be sort of more thinking about what kind of public good they can do. And the mayoralties allow for a real mm. route, potentially. You've mm. seen Andy Street already do it, for example, former CEO of John Lewis, now the um, Conservative mayor for West Midlands Combined Authority. Not that he mentions the Conservative bit that often, but, um, you know, and it's, it's so I think that's quite an interesting thing that we will we will see on it. I mean, I, I think the Labour Party has done... I mean, my feeds yesterday were just pictures of people at this Labour Party business conference. It was all there were there. And there hasn't been a time when I've logged on to LinkedIn in the last year where I don't get a suggested job of, you know, being the Labour Party's East Midlands business regional lead or something. like they, you'd, they be have, very, you'd be very good at that. I'd be good at the East Midlands bit. <laughs> um, but it's quite, um, it's quite 
you know, that they have put and have put a considerable amount of work into this for some time. It will be genuinely, I think it will be fascinating to um, watch to see if they do get more endorsements because that's what they will be after. Yeah, um, but I think people are waiting to see what their policies are really going to look and feel like because don't forget at the moment it's been positioning, it's been mood music, um, it's been very deliberate and strategic. What is the Labour Party's pitch and policies to the business community? Rachel Reeves has made a big song and dance about the City of London Yeah. Um, in a in a joint op-ed with, with, with Sadiq Khan um, where they say all the right things. You know, Rachel Reeves says, and she said it in Davos, Labour is the party of wealth creation. Mm. Um, and this is this is really encouraging to the business community, but it shouldn't be forgotten that Labour is also the party of wealth taxation. Yeah. Um, however they want to position themselves at the moment, they just are. Um, I say that perfectly mindful that the Tory party have taken taxation to an extraordinarily high level in this country over their time in office, but the Labour Party you know, will be devising ways to tax wealth in, I'm sure of it. Um, but so in terms of positioning, they want to say we're the party of wealth creation, we're the party of business, we support risk. But there's always a caveat. This is still the Labour Party. You know, They are still, albeit now a more mainstream centre-left incarnation of the Labour Party than, than, than in recent years. But it is still the Labour Party and people should remember that their instincts are going to be different to the instincts of Tory chancellors, Tory yeah. prime ministers. And so the Labour Party will say all the right things, but they will also then say things that, that, that for me, might make my eyebrows go up a little bit. So Rachel Reeves and Keith Starmer talk now, as much as they talk about being a party of business, they're also saying that business and government now need to work in partnership more than ever mm. before, and that this is some sort of joint venture between the private sector and the state. And I'm mindful of you know stakeholder capitalism and, of course, businesses are going to have points of interest that overlap with the government and party politics. But but in general, it is not the job of businesses to work in partnership with government. Yes. It is not the job of businesses to try to make sure they're aligned with the aims of government um, beyond the extent to which doing so is in the interests of their business. Um, so I understand the way in which that debate has changed. I understand the way in which businesses tend to now be much more mindful of wider stakeholders and that's a good thing they're also principally mindful of shareholders yeah and you know it is not necessarily the, the first order of business for um for, for a chief executive or a board or an entrepreneur or an investor to to consider how their decisions and their priorities and their strategies um support or align with the strategies of the government of the day so people yeah. should be mindful of the extent to which labor want to support business through their words um but but also expect this kind of partnership of, of endeavour. Um, I would be a little wary of that. But but you know that just to remind people that we are talking about a Labour government. Yeah, it's going to be pretty different to a Tory government. I think that's. I mean, it, it will be. And I think a lot of it. You're right to talk about instincts, but it's also one of my reflections of being in government and so on. Is it's a lot of it comes down to priorities, right? There's so much that the kind of government does and so many government departments, etc. You know, the Prime Minister and, and Chancellor can only sort of focus on a few things and what are they going to sort of pick as those priorities yeah. to kind of drive them through. And that's partly what, you know, the Conservative Party's had a bit of a problem with its second half of its 14 years as it's been taken up with Brexit, coronavirus, Ukraine, etc. And events always happen to Prime Ministers and governments, to be fair. But it does mean, yeah. You know, what are your sort of second tier issues that you kind of want to focus on? And and obviously, you know, Cameron Osborne, big thing that they did for the biggest business community was bring down corporation tax. You know, that's now going 
back up. And that's frustrating for businesses that want to sort of plan, etc. and so on, particularly international businesses when you're sort of chopping and changing tax amounts. And, yeah. so and with that in mind, that one of the Labour Party's biggest policies at the moment is to commit that they will not raise corporation tax yes. higher than the, the level um, at which the Tories have set it. Um, but there will be so much um, manoeuvring and flanking and outflanking um, in courting the business vote come the general election. Yeah. And if the Tories thought that it was going to be easy for, for them to be able to say, we as Tory party are committed to this little tax cut or pledging to look at that tax cut in the future because they think that it would make Labour um, be on the wrong side of that argument. Uh, they are mistaken because Labour is anticipating this at every turn and yeah. they're not falling into every trap that the Tories want to set them. Although the trap that they might be falling into of their own regard is on this issue of whether or not they're going to find 28 billion quid for green transition or green future or whatever it was. That figure um, is still hanging around their necks a little bit. And, and of course, for those that perhaps aren't familiar with, with the policy, a long, long time the Labour Party has said that they will spend 28 billion on the green transition or green revolution or whatever it might be. Um, and of course, the Tories have been able to say, well, where are you going to find that money? You're going to borrow it. You're going to put taxes up. Um, and that's dangerous territory for the Labour Party to have to be defending itself on. And so they've decided, I think, by the looks of it, to bite the bullet and say, well, 28 billion, not a cast iron commitment. I think just this morning, I, I heard uh, Keir Starmer say that whilst it wasn't a firm pledge, it was, um, what was the phrase he used? It was a, an exciting ambition or, a, or a, you know, a, I can't even remember. It was going to manifest. Yeah, he's basically put it on his sort of mood board, <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. you know, his wish list, um, because they don't want to have to go into the election defending a policy that the Tories will easily be able to point out um, is, is, is going to have serious economic consequences. And this is where Labour at the moment are, and this is the, the party's whole strategy, not just business and economic one, but is shrink the target, right? Like give the Conservative Party less to kind of go at you, whereas Corbyn's was very much the kind of the opposite, huge target, like you go, go <laughs> sort of way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Almost too much, arguably, in some ways, but that's a conversation for a different day, perhaps. But um, whereas they're sort of really shrinking the target. And, and this is where I do think more broadly... I am, you know, I wrote a predictions piece at the start of the year on my Substack saying that I actually think Labour will end up between 300 and 330 seats. Now, I may well come to regret that and that may well be a mistake. But I do think you see things with this 28 billion, you see it on things like the child benefits and sort of capping that, where the Labour Party is still making mistakes when it kind of gets forced into stuff. For the last 18 months, to almost two years really, the Labour Party strategy has been, you know, let the Conservatives sort of. You know, blow both feet off with um, you know sawn off shotguns etc in the next year it is going to change and the intensity is going to wrap up on Labour about like what are you going to do like what is it and particularly when the election's called both sides end up having to have exactly the same broadcast time which is something in 2017 that I think we didn't quite sort of I think that ended up having a bigger effect on the uh, campaign um, than we thought Theresa May versus Jeremy Corbyn and I think that there is a challenge for Labour with this of, you know, what, what are their plans going to be and, you know, how do they communicate them? Because actually there is things like the £28 billion plan where they've, you know, they, they have now got this number around their neck and they can't really get away from it and they're going to be asked in every single business and economics interview they do about that. So it's where I think, like, the next election is not quite as sort of sewn up as everyone thinks and... 
you know, you look at Brexit referendum in 2016, general election in 2017 and 2019, campaigns can really shift the dial mm -hmm. uh, in the modern age. Um, you know, it's not like 97, 2001, where, you know, the votes were almost known sort of beforehand. So I think it's going to be a fascinating year in that regard, in terms yeah. of, because I think the British public will again, then at the moment, they're not quite sort of tuning in. They're, they're, you know, they're, That's right. I mean, so the only kind of... Um grounds for hope or optimism that the Tory strategists have at the moment is um, the large number of undecided voters that, that still yes. exist. Um, and so voters are constantly being segmented. There are votes up for grabs and the Tories are going to try and figure out a way to, to get them. And the group that the Labour Party is conscious of, as I think they've identified 8 million voters who they label as green curious Yes. People for whom environmental issues have come up the agenda in terms of deciding how they vote. Um, and one Labour source was quoted as saying that just to keep those 8 million green curious voters on side, every so often they'll let Ed Miliband out with his green ukulele and he can <laughs> sing them a little Kumbaya 28 billion song. Um, but that's basically it. When was the last time you saw Ed Miliband yes. out on broadcast media? He is being kept quite, I mean, I would say he's being kept quite deliberately for particular purposes, for particular audiences, because the only people you've heard from at the moment are the shadow, I mean, in recent weeks, yeah, if not yeah. months, is Johnny Reynolds, Shadow Business Secretary, um, who I got to know when I was editor at City AM, and he was serving in Corbyn's Shadow Cabinet. And um, I don't think I'm betraying any confidences when I say that he and I used to get together and talk, and, and he would basically say, oh, God, it's it's awful, it's terrible, but, you know. And I'd say, why are you in the Shadow Cabinet? Why are you? And, he, and he would say... Listen, he said, I think someone's got to be here, um, you know, for when the lights get turned off. The Labour Party is not always going to be like this. And uh, and look at him now. Yeah, um, yeah. well, that's the same reasons Keir Starmer used to uh, say as well. Right? But that, that was, yeah, that. that's right. That was Keir's defence as well. But um, so you've got Johnny Reynolds, Rachel Reeves, Keir Starmer. This is at the moment, whether it's just this particular period on the Labour Party message grid, these are the people you see. This is the territory they want to be on. Business, economy, you can trust us. Um, and this 28 billion figure, Ed Miliband doing his little TikTok videos in a wind farm, um, have kind of been pushed down the grid a bit. But whether we'll see more of them, I don't know. Probably be more specifically targeted. But it does also show Starmer's ruthlessness because he took the business bit off Miliband and gave it to Johnny Reynolds right, a couple of yeah, years ago. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's not easy to do that to a former party leader. Um, so it's... Uh, yeah, it will be it will be fascinating yeah. to um, and the only, and one final thing that we should just talk about before we wrap up is for all this talk and excitement about the opposition and how they're positioning themselves and getting business support, the government is still governing. Yeah, and you and you'll know this because you've been in number ten. You know when the polls weren't good and when things were a bit tricky, but nevertheless, you know if you're a business leader with a problem, do you want to talk to the leader of the opposition or do you want to talk to the person in government? And it is still for some months at least this government a Tory government, and they aren't going down without a fight. And by accident or design, they unveiled their own new business council. Yes. Um, number 10's new council of business leaders. Um, they unveiled that on the same day that Labour was gathering with, with their business support of business um, audience. So what is the Prime Minister's business council, Jimmy? How do people come onto it and what's it for? Yes. Well, this would be my mastermind topic, probably. So um, there's plenty to... Um, to kind of talk about maybe my PhD topic rather than my mastermind topic. But it's essentially, a Prime Minister works about 90 hours a week. And actually, when you strip out Cabinet and the, the engagements that they have to do, so Cabinet, PMQs, prepping for PMQs, 
audience with a king. There isn't that much time left for flexibility in the diary of uh, things, and they can't see business as much as they would like to. And so these councils are sort of designed to get, well, let's get a wide range of people that can come in and see the Prime Minister once a month, maybe once a quarter, and give them a view of the state of the nation of things. And that is what these business councils are designed to do. Now, having put a number of these together over the years, they are quite challenging in terms of um, for lots of things that we talked about. You, know, you, you want big business there. You want entrepreneurs there. You want people that are scaled. You need businesses that are public. You need them that are private. You need to get the gender balance of these things right. And then you also need to make sure that you get businesses from all around the United Kingdom as well. So there's a real kind of like, you know, sort of jigsaw puzzle of where you're trying to move these different people. You also need people that are performers as well, that do well in these things. Um, when I was there in number 10, we had to try and make sure that we got people that particularly ones uh, that had voted Brexit and been vocal on that, for example. That was a balance that needs to be taken. Which is why we used to use Richard Walker from Iceland earlier quite a bit, because he, he voted leave. Um, and so you've got all these sort of things that you're trying to balance, and it's um, it's complicated. You, know, you need people that export, and you need different manufacturers. Like The council they put together this week, I think, I actually did a pretty good job of it, um, and so on. But I was actually surprised there wasn't a big retailer in there. There wasn't a big supermarket in there. There wasn't a Sainsbury's, Tesco, M&S. Do you think they might have been asked and said no? Possibly, but unlikely, I think. Um, I don't. I think mean, to be would... fair, if you're Tesco and you need to have a quick word with the business secretary, you can do that. Yes. You don't need to be listed on the minutes of a quarterly prime ministerial business council meeting. Yes, that is... Um... So why do businesses say yes to being on these things? Well, I think there's an element of status with it. I think, you know, sort of going in the black door. and I mean, it's quite... Uh, one of the things I was struck by the meetings often was that a lot of the business leaders didn't necessarily know each other. So I think it's sort of, you know, semi-useful networking mm -hmm. thing. Again, not the CEO. Tesco needs to particularly sort of, you know, network. But, um, yeah, they're, they're quite interesting on that side of it. And it is an opportunity to kind of get your voice right at the top table. And there can be things that you are struggling with with the business department for example like a small minor bit that you can bring up at these business councils for example mm. prime minister you know we aren't getting you know we're struggling with this particular thing and that's what those councils can be very good at doing is sort of unblocking and giving a bit of an overview of things the, the challenge with it there are many challenges with it but when they actually are appointed and when they're operating is how do you make sure that they don't turn into sort of quasi lobbying shops, you know, you're sort of getting the CEO of EasyJet sort of coming in and saying, well, you know, what would unlock growth, Prime Minister, is, you know, reduction in air passenger duty, you know, and sort of, you know, or Barrett Holmes saying, you know, what would really be great is if you could extend help to buy Prime Minister, that would really unlock the UK's economic growth, you know, do pretty well for your profits too. So it's kind of like, that's a bit of a challenge of how do you make mm. them sort of, you know, actually useful for, for all parties in that sense. By the time, by the end of my time, number ten, we actually had five councils, and we used to sort of theme them around sort of sectors and around challenges, and that was quite good because it kind of put the onus a bit more onto the businesses in terms of you know you come with ideas for how we can kind of um, make better use of AI and, and things like that. Because if you don't have that sort of proactive agenda setting, you know the businesses will just sort of come and say what they want to do. So um, I think they're interesting. It, it will be. You know, if, if Labour do win the election later this year, it will be interesting to see 
how they kind of construct that. Obviously, Ian Anderson has done a report that's out this this week. Um, because I do think... Yeah, Ian's become the most well-known lobbyist in the country. I know. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you and I both know Ian. He's a good guy. Um, he was a very vocal Tory supporter. He has been on a journey, uh, philosophical or pragmatic, I don't know. He's now a very vocal Labour supporter and was commissioned to write a report on, on how Labour can engage with the business community. Yeah. And um, I'm sure all of Ian's clients will be reading that w- with interest. I, I won't be any more cynical than that. <laughs> But we will, we will listen. We're, we're going to do more of these particular episodes looking at yes. business and politics in an election year. Maybe we get Ian Anderson on as a guest. Yeah, yeah, we should. We should actually <laughs> love that. Um, but yeah, no, no. And if like if you have found this interesting, we, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can get in touch with us, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all the usual sort of places. Um, I do think this is a really sort of underserved topic kind of in the mainstream media. It is, you know, look, it's quite niche, right? Sort of the interaction of business and politics, but. Seven out of every eight people in the United Kingdom that are employed were employed in the private sector. Um, and it's a stat that's kind of stuck with me. And I think trying to explain a bit about how politics works and how business operates and so on be really valuable for kind of people to, to understand a bit more about how these worlds operate. I hope so. And I'll try and think up another Oliver Letwood anecdote for the next episode. I know, try and think of some more. Well, let us know your... your yeah. Not just your Letwin Write to us with your favourite Oliver Letwin anecdotes <laughs> and uh, we'll read out the best ones next week. Thanks. Thanks.